Well, would you open your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 1? Thank you for tuning in. Those that have just now joined us, we appreciate you watching tonight and participating in our Bible study. I hope that you have a Bible handy as well. 1 Peter chapter 1, last week we, we were looking at verses 1 through, I'm sorry, verses 13 through 15. And that was a call, if you remember, it really is a call to live a holy life. And the reason that we are called to live a holy life, according to the text that we looked at last week, is because we serve a holy God. And that really makes sense, doesn't it? If God is a holy God and we are His children, we're called to reflect the nature of our Heavenly Father. And so we're, we live a holy life because we serve a holy God. And in fact, the challenging thing that we saw last week is that Peter says you, you are to live a holy life in everything that you do. In everything that you do. There's not certain areas that that's God's area. And then there's other areas that's yours. But live a holy life in everything that you do. And the reason for that is so that you can live on mission for this holy God. That this holy God wants to use your life and work in and through your life. But because he is holy, he needs his receptacle, his, uh, his tools, if you will, to be separated as well. Uh, To be hagios, we looked at that word last week, holy, separated for a particular purpose. So live a holy life so you can serve a holy God. That was last week. Now, for those of you who are here in the sanctuary, you know what the title of the study is if you've already gotten an outline. Uh, Those that are watching online, let me tell you what we're going to be talking about tonight. We're going to see that not only are we called to live a holy life, but the thing that motivates our holy living It's what the Bible refers to as our fear of the Lord or our fear of God. Now, I know that doesn't quite sound right to some of us, that there's something a little disconcerting, isn't there, about that word fear. And yet, if you take your Bibles, if you look at verse 17, which is going to be the focal verse tonight, uh, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 17, that focal verse is so important. Uh, Listen to what it says or follow along as I read. Since you call on the Father who judges each man's work impartially, live your lives as strangers here in reverent fear. Now, this verse is so important that I've actually put it on your notes, if you have the note sheet. Because what we're going to do is let this one verse be foundational to everything we talk about tonight. And this verse really helps us understand the rest of the text. And so I put this one verse on your notes so that we'll have the same translations but also, more importantly, so that you can mark it up as we work our way through this verse. Since you call on a father who judges each man's work impartially, live your lives as strangers here in reverent fear. Now, the context of this text is very important. If you look at verse 17, at least looking at the verse on your note sheet, what is the very first word? sense. If you're reading that verse in the King James Version, the very first word is the word and. Or if you're reading from the uh, New American Standard Bible, the very first word in verse 17 is the word if. Other translations, I think, also use that word if. But the Greek, in the Greek text, the grammatical form means that this word, which is sometimes translated if, or since, or and, it, it really assumes that what the writer is going to be talking about is true. 
that's why in the NIV it uses this word since, like since this is true, is kind of the, the idea behind that word. The point is that the material in verse 17 is closely linked to verses 15 and 16. Very closely linked. Uh, in other words, if you really want to understand what he's talking about in verse 17, which is such a pivotal verse, make sure you link it, you connect it to what he's already said in verses 15 and 16. So let's go back, refresh our memories. Verse 15, but just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all that you do. For it is written, be holy because I am holy. Since that verse is connected, it's linked since you call on a father who judges each man's work impartially, live your lives as strangers here in reverent fear. Think of it this way. The holy God that we serve, verses 15 and 16, the holy God that we serve is the same, watch this, is this verses 15 and 16, the holy God that we serve is the same God we pray to in verse 17. That this God we pray to is holy. Therefore, we should live our lives in reverent fear of this God who is holy. Now, I know we're, we live in a world that doesn't like to talk very much about this idea of the fear of God. People don't mind talking about the love of God or the grace of God or the blessings of God or the mercies of God. But this whole idea of fear of God is kind of an unusual subject for some of us. But to think of God as a judge, thats the word fear in this verse at least is connected to the concept of God as a judge. Look, look at the text again. Since you call on the Father who judges each man's work impartially, live your lives as strangers here in reverent fear. To think of God as a judge and to think of this word fear connected to that word judge, it really is unsettling for a lot of people, even for some Christians. So what I want to do is walk through verse 17 very carefully. And I want you to understand this concept of the fear of God. By the way, did you know in Proverbs it says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And if you really want to Google this idea of the fear of the Lord or the fear of God, it is multiple times throughout Scripture. I started to give you all the verses, but it would just be a lot of verses, too many verses for us to go through. The fear of, but Proverbs kind of sum, summarizes it for us. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And so at least from that verse, we understand that this concept of the fear of the Lord or the fear of God is for our benefit. That the fear of the Lord or the fear of God is something... That is positive, not negative. So, let's walk through verse 17 carefully. He says, and, and you can mark this on, on your note sheet there, the verse. You call on a father. Since you call on a father, underline or circle, somehow mark that word father. Now, the first thing that Peter is telling us in this verse, that this God who is holy, verses 15 and 16 the amazing thing about this God who is holy, verses 15 and 16, is that he is also personal. Peter says you call on him. You can actually call on him. You can actually talk to him. You can actually pray to him because he is personal. He is Father. Now, remember what he said already in verse 14. He hinted at this in verse 14. As obedient children... 
Do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. Obedient children. Children of who? Obedient children of your heavenly father. We call God our father. But here's, going, here's the point Peter's going to make. You do call him father, but that does not diminish his nature. You do call him father, but he is still holy. Verses 15 and 16, link those two verses to verse 17. Yes, you call him father. And Jesus told us that we can call God our Abba, our, our Abba, our father. Yes, you call him father, but he is still holy. It doesn't change his nature. What, I say it this way. God is personal, but he is also powerful. Can I pause there for a moment and say, sometimes I think we kind of try to bring God down to our level. We kind of make God like our earthly fathers, except he happens to live in heaven. And I don't think people are trying to be disrespectful, but they talk about, you know, my heavenly daddy or something like that. And, and I understand the concept of, of what Jesus said about Abba and Father. I get all of that. But sometimes I think we have forgotten the holiness and the majesty and the power and the awesomeness of God. Yes, God is somebody you can relate to. Jesus has made it possible for us to call God our Father. In fact, Jesus said, when you pray, this is the way you get started. Our Father, who art in heaven. So I'm not trying to diminish the Father aspect of God. But I think we need to understand, when we talk about God as Father, He is not like our earthly Father. Peter's argument is that we dare not treat God casually. That's the point I'm trying to make. We dare not treat God casually. We should not assume that our privileged status as children of God gives us freedom to do whatever we want. Because, if you look at verse 17, there's another word I want you to mark. It is the word, let me find it, uh, judges. Since you call on a father who judges, link those two words together, circle or highlight or underline the word father and the word judges. You know what Peter's trying to help us understand? This holy God, verses 15 and 16. This holy God, yes, you can refer to him as your father because he is personal. But he also is our judge. I'll say it to you this way. Your heavenly father is also going to be your heavenly judge. I don't know what your earthly father was like. I know I talk a lot about mine and... I'm not going to apologize for that because that, he, he shaped my life greatly. And so let me just tell you a little story. You know, I have not always been a pastor. I've not always been a preacher. You know that, right? You know, I, I started, I surrendered to the ministry my, um, uh, about a, a month before my 18th birthday. So I was 17 when I surrendered to the ministry. But, but you know, I had a normal childhood just like everybody else, right? And and, and would you believe that sometimes I'd, I kind of act up in church, Tom? Would you believe that? Sometimes I'd act up in church. Yeah, you, th- yeah, you thought I was the perfect child. Yeah. Uh, no, sometimes I'd act up in church. But you know what? I didn't do that too many times. You know why? Because my father was also my judge. James Shorter was always at church with me. And if he saw me act up, my father, who loved me tremendously, was also going to be my judge, either 
at the church when he yanks me up and takes me out or when I get home. Right? Anybody else have a dad like that? And let me tell you about my judge. He had a belt. And he knew how to use that belt. Did my father love me? Absolutely. But there were some days my father was also my judge. Now, that really is, quite honestly, a weak illustration because your heavenly father is also your judge. But again, we can't bring him down to our earthly level. Because as our heavenly father, he is joint going to judge us perfectly. And the reason I know that is because look at this verse again, verse 17. Since you call on the father who judges each man's work. What's that next word? Yeah. Impartially. Impartially. God would judge you on the basis of your works and he's going to do it impartially. So before we get too far into that, I just want to go back to that word, to the word that's in front of impartially. What is the word that's in front of impartially? Since you call on the Father who judges each man's work, impartially live your lives as strangers. So, so let's look at these two concepts of our work and our Father who judges our work impartially. So for, what, what does it mean that this judgment that God is going to judge our works? You might want to write, that. there's no blank I don't think for this, but you might want to write it down the column somewhere on your notes or whatever. When it refers to works, it's referring to the way that you've lived your life. Your Heavenly Father one day is going to be your judge and He's going to judge you based on the way you've lived your life. Based on your works. Now, let me also write this down. This has, if you're a Christian, this has nothing to do with your salvation. Except for the fact that your salvation ought to produce good works. James talks about that. So this is a judgment that it really is not about whether or not you get in heaven. That's not what this judgment is. This is a judgment about what have you done with your life since you got saved. So he's going to judge your works after salvation. You see, if you're a Christian, you know this, but let me remind you, especially those watching online, if you're a Christian, your sins have already been judged at the cross. That's the, the beautiful thing about the cross. 1 Peter 2, 24 uh, let's just go there real quickly for, since it's in the same book. First Peter 2.24 says this, He Himself bore our sins in His body on the tree so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. Live for righteousness is talking about the way you live your life, isn't it? It's talking about what you do with your life after, you got, after you, Christ has paid for your sins, after you've accepted Him as Savior. You are to live for righteousness. How you live your life as a believer matters. But my point right here is simply this. Our sins have already been judged on the cross and therefore our sins will never be held against us. Can somebody say amen to that? Our sins will never be held against us. So when the Lord Jesus returns, there will be a time of judgment and it's called for the Christian, it's called the judgment seat of Christ. I'm not going to get too far into this because I'm... I really think, I haven't settled on it, but I really think on Sunday night we're going to talk about this concept of, of rewards, judgment and rewards. But let me give you a couple of references in case I don't get to it Sunday night. 
Romans 14, verses 10 through 12. Romans 14, verses 10 through 12. And 2 Corinthians 5, verses 9 and 10. 2 Corinthians 5, 9 and 10 talks about the judgment seat of Christ. But let me summarize what these verses are talking about. Each Christian will give an account of his or her works, and each will receive, based on that, appropriate rewards. And again, Lord willing, probably Sunday night, we'll talk about that. This is what you might call a family judgment. And what the reason I... And that's not a theological term. That's, that's a key shorter term. Uh, the reason I call it a family judgment is, is in this judgment, the father is dealing with his children. The father is asking, what did you do with the life I gave you? What did you do with the salvation I made possible? And God is... Now watch this. God's going to judge you not to punish you, but, determine, but to determine how to reward you. Alright, so with that in mind, going back to chapter 1, verse 17, let's read that verse again. Since you call on a father who judges each man's work impartially. Uh, you might want to mark that word, impartially. You know what that word means? It means that God's going to, God is going to judge you based on your works, not on the basis of how nice of a person you are. He's going to judge you impartially. God's going to judge you on the basis of your works, not on the basis of how long you've been a member of Mount Airy Baptist Church. God's going to base, judge you on the basis of your works, uh, not on the basis of your good intentions. Well, I intended to do this. God's going to judge you on the basis of your works. And I want to say it one more time because I don't want you to be confused. When, as a Christian, when God judges you, the purpose is not to determine if you're going to heaven or hell. That's determined by Christ's death on the cross. The purpose of this judgment is to determine how God might reward you on the way that you lived your life as a believer. Let me show you Romans chapter 2, verse 11. Romans chapter 2, verse 11. It's a short verse, but man, it's so good. Romans chapter 2, verse 11. For God does not show favoritism. That, that's one of those verses you ought to mark beside chapter 1, verse 17, kind of a cross-reference. God does not show favoritism. God's going to judge every person fairly. God's going to judge every person righteously. God's going to judge every person impartially. One day, to summarize what we've talked about so far, one day we will give an account to God for our time here on earth because we are His children and we are accountable to Him. We are His children, and we are accountable to Him. So, one more time, we're almost finished with verse 17. Peter says, therefore, live your lives as... What's that next word? Live your lives as what? Strangers. We've seen that verse or that word before when we opened the book. In the very first verse, it talks about, to God's elect, strangers in the world, scattered, Throughout Pont, uh, Pontus, Galatia, etc. The New American Standard translates that part of the verse. Conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay here on earth. I like that translation. Conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay here on earth. 
We saw that word strangers in verse 1. That, and I told you that that word really means that you're temporarily living here, but heaven is your home. That's the concept behind the word strangers there. That this, this is your temporary place. You're living here, but, but you know this is not your permanent residence. Heaven is your home. Here's the lesson that Peter's trying to get us to understand. The reason he says live your lives with reverent fear as strangers here on earth. Here's the lesson. Life is too short to waste. Too short to waste. Since you call on a father who judges each man's work impartially, live your lives as strangers here in reverent fear. It would be good for us if we could live with the awareness that we're only here for a season. We're only here for a season. And then we go to our heavenly home. You know, a couple of years ago, our son Jonathan was living in Phoenix. He moved there. But he, but he knew when he moved there, he was just going to live there for a season. He knew he was going to live there for a year, actually, because he was doing a residency program at a big mega church out there in, in their video uh, department. And, and so he moved to Phoenix for a year. He lived there. That was, that was his home. But he knew it was just a temporary place. And then he's going to come to his real home. We're all strangers like that. Every one of us. You're living here right now. But if you know Christ as Savior, this is not your home. You're just a temporary resident. And one day God will take you home. William Barclay said, I, I like this, I put it down in my notes. William Barclay said, Life for the Christian is lived in the shadow of eternity. He thinks all the time, not of where he is, but also of where he's going. That for the Christian, the thing that ought to occupy your mind is, is not just where you are right now, but where you're going. So, we should live our lives, Peter says, as citizens of heaven and realizing that God is both our Father and our Judge. And so we come back to this word at the end of verse 17. That uncomfortable word, fear. I like the translation in verse 17, the NIV translation. He says, uh, in reverent fear. I think that really helps us understand that word fear from a biblical perspective. This is not the fear of a slave who has a ruthless master not the kind of fear that he's talking about. Rather, this is a, a healthy respect for a powerful God. A healthy respect for a powerful God. But I think there's a blank here for your notes. Fearing God is not terror. Fearing God is not terror. It is reverence and awe. Warren Wiersbe said, it is not the fear of judgment, but a fear of disappointing Him or sinning against His love. And when you fear God, it's not the fear of, oh no, God's going to destroy me. That's not the fear that a Christian should have. You should not be living in terror of God because He is your Father. Yeah, yeah, but He's also my judge. Exactly. He is your Father who cares about you, but He is your judge, and so... Uh, you just need to fear you might disappoint Him or you fear that you might sin against Him, but it's not a fear of terror. The best way I can describe the word fear to you, and I thought about this for a while, it's like, how do I communicate what that word really means? Uh, I want you to imagine that God Himself 
visibly appeared in our sanctuary tonight. If God himself appeared in a visible form suddenly in our sanctuary tonight, I guarantee you we would all fall on our faces in fear. Not in terror, but in reverence and in awe. Now listen to me, listen real carefully. You would instantly recognize His holiness. You would instantly recognize His majesty. You would instantly recognize His power. You would instantly recognize His love. You would instantly recognize He's not the man upstairs. He is God. And you would fall down. I promise you, you would fall down in absolute reverence, in absolute awe. If that's true, and it is, Peter says, why shouldn't you live your life that way? Because He is your Father and He will be your judge. So live in, as the NIV calls it, live in reverent fear. In other words, just treat God like He really is God. Just respond to Him like He really is God. Because one day, you will stand before Him to give an account. So here's the first point. Put this on your notes. I I put the the very first point at the kind of end of the first point rather than the beginning. The first point to summarize is this. The fear of God is rooted in who God is. Put that on your notes. The fear of God is rooted in who God is. I want to stretch your brain a little bit. How could we trust in a God who is not infinitely greater than we are? Isn't one of the reasons that we give our lives to Him and we trust Him because He is infinitely greater than we are? Would you agree that God's holier than you are? I hope you would. Would you agree that God has more power than you do? Does He have a little bit more power or does He have a whole lot more power? Easy question, right? How could we trust in a God who is not infinitely greater than we are? In some ways, we could make the case that we can only trust... Listen to this carefully. Listen to this carefully. In some ways, we could make the case we can only trust in a God whom we fear. You could make the case that we could only trust in a God that we fear. Or a God that we respect. A God that we reverence. A God that fills us with awe. So that's the thing Peter is emphasizing. Since you call on the Father who judges each man's work impartially. This God, verses 15 and 16, who is holy. And since you call this holy God Father, you also need to understand He also judges each person's work impartially. And because that's true, live your lives as strangers here on this earth in reverent fear. Talk about holy living. The motive for holy living. Now, the highest motive for holy living is found in verses 18 through 21. And we're going to go through that a lot quicker. Verse 17, we stayed there for a while. But verse 18 through 21, he shows us the highest motive for holy living. And there's some key words and phrases. The way I put it on your notes is uh, 2, 2, and 2. If you have your notes there, I want to talk to you first about, first of all, about two dramatic contrasts. Verse 17 and in verse 18, there are two dramatic contrasts that I want to help you to understand. First of all, there's the contrast 
verse 17, of God as our Father, and then he contrasts that with our forefathers in verse 18. Let's look at the text, and I think you'll see what I'm talking about. Since you call on a father who judges each man's work impartially, live your lives as strangers here in reverent fear. 4, verse 18. For you know that it was not with perishable things, such as silver or gold, that you were redeemed from the empty way of life, handed down to you from your, what's that last word? Forefathers. Verse 17, he talks about our heavenly father. Verse 18, he's talking about our, our forefathers. And he refers to that which our forefathers have, has given us as something that is basically a worthless heritage. Handed down to us. Look again, verse 18. For you know that it was not with perishable things, such as silver or gold, that you were redeemed from the, notice this, from the empty way of life handed down to you from your forefathers. That word empty has the idea, the, the original language there simply has the idea of no value. That it's worthless. And Peter is saying, your earthly fathers, your forefathers, that they have handed down to you a way of living that is worthless, that has no value to it. Now, the debate is, was Peter referring to the Jews who handed down their empty way of life, saying that the way to righteousness is through keeping the law? And they felt like that they were sons of God simply because they were Jews. Do you remember when Jesus spoke? They said, hey, wait a minute, wait a minute. We're sons of Abraham. Because we're sons of Abraham, that makes us sons of God. And Jesus said, you don't understand. If God really wanted some sons, he could make them out of those rocks. The rocks could become sons of Abraham. The fact that you're sons of Abraham doesn't make you a son of God. And so this, some people would say this empty way of life handed down to you from your forefathers would be the, the empty way of life of the Jews trying to find uh, satisfaction in life by keeping the law and perfection in life by keeping the law. Others say, no, 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 no. What he's talking about is not Jews. He's talking about Gentiles. Gentiles who worship pagan gods, little g gods. And they're trying to pass on their faith to their children and their children and their children. And, and it's an empty way of life because they're worshiping lifeless idols. It's an empty way of life. So was he referring to, was Peter referring to Jews or Gentiles? And the answer is, we really don't know. Let's assume he was talking about both. Because it's true that both were empty ways of life handed down from their forefathers. So, Look at the text one more time, verse 18. For you know that it was not with perishable things, such as silver or gold, that you were redeemed from the empty way of life, handed down to you from your forefathers. You have a precious heritage given to you by your heavenly Father. And what is that precious heritage? He refers to it in verse 18. You were redeemed by what? Not gold or, or silver, but you were redeemed by what? Yeah. Get this word picture. Your forefathers, probably with good intentions, your forefathers handed down to you what they knew, but it was empty. It was powerless. There was no value to it. It was worthless. That's what your forefathers handed down to you. It didn't change anything in your life. But your heavenly father handed down to you something that was priceless. Watch this. Your forefathers gave you that which was worthless. 
But your heavenly Father gave you that which was priceless. The precious blood of his Son. So, that's the, the two dramatic contrasts here between the Heavenly Father and our forefathers. And then next on your notes there, there are two powerful words that we need to see in this text. The first is the word redeemed. For you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed. The word redeemed means to be set free by paying a price. To be set free by paying a price. A slave in that day could be set free by paying a certain sum of money. He could be set free from slavery by paying a certain sum of money. Or somebody else could pay that sum of money for him. But you're set free by paying a price. That was the slave market in that day. But listen to me. No amount of money could set a lost sinner free. Only the blood of Jesus can do that. You were set free. You were redeemed by paying a price. We can't escape sin on our own. Only the life of God's Son could free us. Only, I just want to get up. Only Jesus can redeem you. Only Jesus. And then the next word that is a key word in this text is the word lamb. For you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed, that is, that you were bought out of the slavery of sin from the empty way of life handed down to you from your forefathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. It's interesting that he uses the word lamb there, and it might be an indication, it could be an indication that he was indeed writing to Jews. And the reason I say that is because Peter is reminding his readers of an Old Testament teaching that was important to the early church. And maybe the Gentiles just understood this. And maybe again, the, the audience was both Jew and Gentile. But he's writing to these New Testament believers about something that, that was from the Old Testament that the New Testament church found very, very important. And that is the doctrine of substitution. Beside that word lamb, or if you've got a place there, I can't remember what I put in your notes. Uh, maybe I think it was just a blank space. That word lamb, write down the doctrine of substitution. And that is an innocent victim giving his life for the guilty. An innocent victim giving his life for the guilty. That's what a lamb did. The lamb never committed any sin, but the lamb gave his life for the guilty. In the Old Testament days, every time a lamb was sacrificed, that was the concept. That this innocent lamb is giving his life for the guilty. The doctrine of substitution. The lamb was being substituted for the guilty party. And here, in verse 18, For you know it was, it was not with perishable things, such as silver or gold, that you were redeemed from the empty way of life, handed down to you from your forefathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. So here's the big question on the front of your notes there. I think on the right-hand column, there's the big question. Here's the big question I want to ask you tonight to think about. Is the life I'm living worth the price He paid for my salvation? Is the life that I'm living worth the price that He paid for my salvation? You, you remember in 1 Corinthians 6, it says, You were bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body, which are His. And the life 
Is the life that I'm living worth the price He paid for my salvation? It's a great question to bring some focus to your own walk with the Lord. So we've had two powerful, power, dramatic contrasts, two powerful words, and now in closing, I want to look at two clarifying verses in verses 20 and 21 as we finish this text. Verse 20, two clarifying verses, here they are. He, Jesus, this Lamb that was our substitute, He was chosen before the creation of the world. Get this picture in your mind. As they would go out to look for the lamb that would be offered as a substitute. The innocent for the guilty. As they would go out to choose that perfect lamb. The lamb without blemish. The perfect lamb. As they would go out to choose that perfect lamb. In the same way, the Bible says that he, Jesus the ultimate perfect lamb, was chosen when? I've read it, but tell me. He was chosen when? Yeah. You know why that's important? You need to understand that Jesus' sacrifice for our sin was not an afterthought. You need to understand it was not something that God decided to do once the world got out of control. It's not like the world just got all messed up and God said, i got to do something. You know, Lisa and I, we have a quote sometimes where we say, you know, we just got to do something about something. It's just time to do something, you know? That's not what happened in regard to Jesus and our salvation. It was not like God looked down on the world one day and said, golly, have you all seen Sodom and Gomorrah? Anybody notice what's going on down there? Anybody seen how bad that is? We need to come up with a plan. We got to figure out a way to fix this thing. That's not what happened. And then an angel said, Oh, I got an idea. And it's going to sound weird, but what, what, what if you took on flesh and, and you, you went down there? I, 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 that's not the way it happened. Here's the way it happened. Let this stretch your mind a little bit. Here's the way it happened. He was chosen before the creation of the world. The plan was set in motion by an all-knowing, eternal God long before the world was created. Now, one of the reasons I want you to understand that is because I want you to see something. The law that we read about throughout the New Testament, and of course, that you read about primarily in the Old Testament, the law was not scrapped because it didn't work. Both the law and the coming of Christ were part of God's eternal plan. In fact, I think it's the book of Galatians, going on memory here, but I think it's the book of Galatians that says the law was actually intended to be our our schoolmaster. The law was actually intended to be our teacher. That the law had a purpose, and the purpose of the law was to show us that we're sinners. As I, I can never live up to that standard. That was the purpose of the law, to say, okay, this is God's standard, good luck. And you keep living it and trying to obey it, and eventually you recognize there is something twisted inside of me because I just can't live to that standard. And God would say, exactly. That's the purpose of the law. 
So it's not like God scrapped the law and said, well, that didn't work. Anybody got plan B? It, that was, no, he was chosen before the creation of the world. And the law was part of his plan to point people to the fact they are sinners and they need a Savior. And guess who appeared on the scene? God in flesh. The Lamb. Chosen. Before the creation of the world. And so he goes on to say. He was chosen before the creation of the world. But was revealed in these last times for your sake. He's talking about the times in which Peter was writing. It's like okay let me tell you something. God chose Jesus before he ever created the world. But in these days in which you're living. Right now New Testament days. When Peter was writing. That's when he's been revealed. And let's watch this, verse 21. Through Him, through Jesus, you believe in God who raised Him from the dead. The reason you believe in God, the reason you have this relationship with God is because you believe in Jesus. You've seen Him and you believe in Him. Through Him, you believe in God who raised Him from the dead and glorified Him. And so, your faith and hope are in God. I don't know about you, I'd hate to have my faith and hope in anything else. Especially at times in which we are living. People put their faith and hope in a lot of things, do they not? And you can put your faith and hope in those kind of things and try to make it in life. But I am so thankful my faith and my hope is in God. So here's the second point. We're going to close with this. The second point, put on your notes. Our fear of God should stimulate us To live for God. Our fear of God should stimulate us to live for God. See the purpose of the fear of God is not that we cower in terror. The purpose of our fear is reverence and awe. And that reverence and awe. That this God who is holy. Verses 15 and 16. This God is holy. I can call Father. And this God who is holy that I call Father one day is going to be my judge. And when I stand before Him, I don't want to stand empty-handed. When I stand before Him, I don't want to stand ashamed. When I stand before Him and He says, Child, what did you do with that life I gave you? What did you do with that salvation my son paid for? How did you live your life? Now listen, now let me tell you something. I don't know that anybody is going to ever say, you know what, I did everything I, I could have done. I don't know that anybody is going to be able to raise their hand and say, did you see how I did that? You know, none of us are going to be able to brag when we're in the presence of God. Would you agree with that? None of us are going to be able to brag in the presence of God. what I want to do what I want to do is when I get there I want to hear these words well done thou good and faithful servant well done let's pray help us O Lord To live in fear of you. Not to live in terror. But to respect you. And to live in awe of you. And to recognize you are all powerful. You are all knowing. 
You are always present. You are always loving. You are God. May we live like you are. And may we take the lives that you've made possible. The salvation you have given us. And may we not waste it. But may we use the life you've given us. The salvation you've made possible. To bring honor and glory to your name. And to bring other people into your kingdom. As your spirit works through us. That's our desire. That's our request. In the name of Jesus. Amen.